0: Welcome back to our study of Proverbs. We're going to pick up in chapter 21, right around verse 27, looks like where we left off. Again, just very generally speaking, we're still in the section of foolish son dealing with fools and foolishness. So all of these fairly loosely strung together. We continue on with this theme through verse 16 of chapter 22. Let's begin with an invocation and prayer. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, just some highlights from the preceding Proverbs. Again, verse 12 should be highlighted. The righteous one observes the house of the wicked. He throws the wicked down to ruin. So a wise life is a life lived with the understanding that God sees all and judges all. Every day is lived in the light of his eye. And of course, as the righteous one, we remember that Christ is the righteous one who shares his righteousness with us. And that is our hope of salvation. That is our hope of standing before the Lord. We also saw a proverb that talks about pursuing righteousness. There is a righteousness in Christ that is freely given. That is the righteousness by grace through faith and these alone but there is a righteousness whereby we become imitators of christ imitators like father like son imitators of our heavenly father that's a righteousness to be pursued so we can make a distinction even on the basis of of these proverbs the language used between luther used this two kinds of righteousness and it's a helpful enough distinction in context um, a righteousness i mean A righteousness that is freely given in Christ and imputed to us, and a righteousness that is wrought by the Holy Spirit in our hearts. To make matters even more complicated, there's actually three kinds of righteousness, if you want to keep parsing out, because there's a civil righteousness of unbelievers that avails not before the throne of God, but you'd rather have a civilly righteous neighbor than a civilly unrighteous neighbor. You'd rather have a civilly righteous ruler than an uncivilly righteous ruler. So credit should be given where credit's due, but none of that first kind of righteousness avails before God. The only righteousness that avails before God is that perfect righteousness that Christ credits to us by grace through faith, and these alone. And then the Holy Spirit works within us that third kind of righteousness, using this way of, this frame, this manner of distinction, uh, where he actually changes our hearts and minds and gives us new impulses. You, You may not remember, but... I mean, I I have uh, this sort of remembrance of fitful times in my life where I noticed this change where I suddenly enjoyed going to church. (laughs) It's like I didn't for a while, to be honest. Or I kind of did, but kind of didn't. Or didn't even really meditate on it because the family's going, and so am I. And that's all the more thought I gave to it. But an astonishing thing, an astounding thing happened where you start to realize, I want to be there. It's interesting it's fun it's important so just an example of how god works changes in our hearts through his holy spirit over time okay wanted to hit some of those highlights from last week and let's just plow into the new material at verse 27 the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination how much more when he brings it with evil intent This gives us opportunity to meditate yet again on that Latin phrase that comes out of the Reformation, ex opera operato, by the working of the work itself. Now, while that specific Latin language comes out of the Reformation, this biblical theme is a problem almost from the very start. In fact, you could argue that it is from the very start. Do you remember right after... Adam and Eve fall into sin that's the first great sin mentioned then what's the second great sin mentioned do you remember yes Cain kills Cain kills Abel and it is at least in part over worship so the worship wars have been around for a long time but Cain is jealous because Abel's worship is done in, faithfully, uh, in faithfulness and the fruits of that bear itself out in that he gives the first fruits, the first portion of his flock, Abel being a shepherd. And Cain doesn't come with that same faith toward God, with that same trust toward God, that same faithfulness and upright heart. And likewise, the text seems to indicate a distinction, even in the sacrifice, that's evident. Now, that's a bit controversial, so I don't ultimately care, but uh, that his sacrifice doesn't seem to necessarily be of the first fruits, just a sacrifice. At any rate, what one can see is Abel sacrificing in faith and Cain going through the motions. And that idea of going through the motions, already there in Cain, but then from Cain forward, becomes a pervasive kind of sin of those who are within the Old Testament Church of God. So that at various times the prophets and minor prophets are are especially lamenting this, and you find these puzzling statements in Scripture like, "Sacrifice I do not desire." Okay, or sacrifice you do not desire, the psalmist prays, but a broken and contrite heart, that kind of thing. Okay, what's going on there is people are thinking in a very pagan way. All God cares about is that I do the sacrifice, and then He promises to forgive, so I can live however I want to live. Little anachronistic, but it's like. Sunday through Friday I can be an absolute scoundrel but on the Sabbath day I come before the Lord and offer my sacrifice and because he's promised to grant forgiveness to me then I have it. And so it becomes a transactional faithless relationship where one just figures okay well I'll have God's blessing if I just do the sacrifice he wants to do I can go on sinning grace goes on abounding it's wonderful. So, that idea is what's in view here, where God Himself says through Solomon, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. God isn't manipulatable, God isn't one to be deceived. And so, a sacrifice must be made with a right heart, in faith toward God and an upright heart. And of course, then the second half, just amplifying the wickedness. How much more when he brings it with an evil intent. So just to look good. Or with the idea of like, oh, sorry God, you're bound to your promises. Really kind of ugly faithlessness in view. And a great warning in this proverb. Okay, any thoughts there before we move on? Yes, please. Sure.
1: They also...
0: Oh yeah, you bring up a great point, that not not only is there the one sin of eating the fruit, yes. there's different nuances there I, the woman being deceived, the man not being deceived, and then when God calls them to task, there's the blame chain that you're yes. pointing out and that's a, that's a problem too, isn't it? So God rightfully goes to the man as the head of his creation, and he blames the woman, and the woman blames the serpent, and God actually kind of it's a master class in parenting he pretty much does nothing but ask questions and let the kids tie their own rope as it were but then humoring this god simply then goes uh, to the serpent and pronounces the curse to the woman and then to the man so there's this kind of symmetry there that happens yeah a whole a whole nexus of uh of sin there right from the start Okay, any other comments we want to make? Yes Sure, absolutely so uh, the sacrifice of the wicked if they're at a pagan temple, for example <laughs> yeah, then that's uh self evidently not right worship of the Lord so Yeah, exactly. You've got this crass, outside of the church, sacrifice. Um, I saw a handful of folks come in. We're Proverbs chapter 21, and we're just looking at the first Proverbs so far, uh, verse 27. So, right, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination, those outside of the household of the Lord, and then those inside of the household of the Lord who are using this. Um, This was the Lutheran critique specifically of the way that the Lord's Supper had been transformed into the so-called sacrifice of the Mass and th- this was then being used in popular piety as well, I can sin as much as I want, Monday through Saturday, as long as I pay for a Mass to be sacrificed for me on Sunday, then I'm out. And so it just, I'm, I'm not, no longer guilty in God's eyes. And so this view just becomes very crassly transactional and faithless. And so obviously the Lutherans are going to reject that and seek to reform the church along the lines of what the Lord's Supper truly is. a blessing of, of God to us to be received in faith for the forgiveness of our sins. Not that we would abuse it and trample the body and blood of Christ, but that we would properly use it, uh, not only as god's gift of forgiveness but then uh, a strengthening as we become flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone a strengthening and a gladness of heart that we might go forth and and not sin strive and fight against it crucify the flesh within etc yes sir would the g- expression that you hear grieving the holy spirit uh, apply here sure could yeah mm-hmm, absolutely Yeah, many and various ways to grieve the Holy Spirit, very sadly. Very sadly. It's a a weighty statement and very sobering and good for us to contemplate that our sins aren't just sins and God doesn't just wink at them. And the Holy Spirit, whose job it is in the divine economy to lead us to Christ, to reveal Christ to us, it becomes grieved by the ways in which we sin and rebel and fall into false belief and despair and other great shame and vice. So it's something to be cognizant of, and maybe even something to add to your confession from time to time. Have mercy on me that I've, by my faithless thoughts, words, and deeds, grieved you. I pray that I have not grieved you. Yeah, It's a very, very serious thing, and course grievous to the holy spirit when we turn his gifts of grace into transactions by which we think we're manipulating him when in fact we're just deceiving ourselves that's really at root of this whole principle it's just a manipulation of god god's saying look i'm not mocked i see your heart i see what's going on and your sacrifice is an abomination to me yeah. okay did i see another uh, hand or mic yes please
1: uh People often debunk Christianity because of the behavior of Christians, but uh, thinking more deeply with this passage and so forth, and uh, the Bible itself acknowledges bad behavior. And I, I think of Christ using uh, this story of the Good Samaritan as re, you know debunking the Pharisees who you know, were so correct, correct, but their heart was far from Christ. So the Bible itself acknowledges this, and Christ himself, and using the woman in Samaria who recognized Christ as her Savior, where the Pharisees kept rejecting, rejecting him.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, there's... You know, the only true hypocrisy, objectively speaking, in Christianity is impenitence. Because the Christian confession, the Christian worship, is that we are poor, miserable sinners. So when one sins or falls into sin and then repents of that sin and desires God's forgiveness, that's not hypocrisy, properly speaking. We confess what we are. We strive against our sin. Sin wins more often than we like to admit. Paul laments that in Romans 7. The good that I want to do, fail to do. The evil that I don't want to do, that I keep on doing, etc. So, um, there's no hypocrisy, objectively speaking, in Christians falling into sin, provided we repent. Provided we avail ourselves of the reconciliation God has given us in Christ Jesus and use his gifts. But it is worth noting, as you highlight, that the world has a hard time making that distinction. Sometimes we should shove it in their face say, your, your definition of hypocrisy is wrong. It's an error. <laughs> he came for the sick, not the well. And I'm sick. <laughs> That's, I need to be healed. I want to be healed. That's not hypocritical. That's faithful to the scriptural revelation. So sometimes we need to slam it back in the world's face. But it is a tragedy that, that, christ, that people are turned off by Christian behavior when we act in a way that is contrary to our Father is and do so manifestly publicly, especially impenitently um, and there is a great danger in that false witness. We have to remember that as the baptized we bear christ 's name, um, we are children of our Father, and we represent his household and so that's, that again is another sobering and real uh, reflection to have on the nature of sin. And on the way in which we should fight sin, you know, Luther riffing on Romans 6, we'll talk about drowning, daily drowning the sinful nature, daily repressing the sinful man within us. And St. Paul, of course, will talk about crucifying him. So, really, really visceral language, isn't it? Uh, when you think of the life and death struggle of trying to drown your enemy, who's trying to drown you, as it were, in sin... Or when you try to crucify uh, your enemy, your flesh. When your flesh is in fact trying to crucify you. And it's a life or death battle between our sinful flesh and the new man within. So yeah, these are weighty, sobering things to consider. And always, always fruitful. It's why the Lord preaches them so frequently in his word. Because it calls us back to integrity of heart. And unity of of spirit, where we confess before God in integrity and receive his forgiveness in unity and go forth then serving the Lord, not serving sin from which we've just been set free. Okay, any other thoughts we want to reflect on there? Let's move on. So, verse 28 of Proverbs chapter 21 Proverbs 21:28 A false witness will perish but the word of a man who hears will endure. This is a deceptively simple proverb. It has many different angles on it, so I'm kind of going to more or less arbitrarily choose one or two. A false witness perishes, not necessarily in this life, not necessarily immediately as a consequence, but because God sees. So I think in the first place, very simply, you may deceive men, but not God. That would be a very simple, straightforward, and preliminary reflection. The word of a man who hears will endure. When we're talking about a wise man in accord with Proverbs we're talking about one who hears the word of the Lord and one who speaks in accord with that word of the Lord so the word of the man reflects his hearing and now it deepens a little doesn't it because a false witness is a liar who's who does a liar to whom does a liar listen to the liar. So, the point I like to remind people of is, in a mighty fortress, the one little word that can fell him is actually, according to Luther himself, the word liar. At first, it strikes us maybe it's not re- really romantic. We would think the one little word should be is in the Lord's Supper, or Christ, or something like this. But um, the more we mature into that reflection of Luther, the more profound and wonderful it becomes satan is a liar through and through god is the one who speaks the truth he speaks what is native to him he is the truth satan speaks what is native to him he is the liar and all other liars are in league with satan so it deepens when we consider that a false witness isn't just a false witness but is literally a broodling of the viper is literally an offspring of the lying serpent. That's what probably, at least in this vein, is at the depth of this proverb. Whereas, contrasting that, the word of the man who hears the word of the Lord will endure. So we would be reminded then of the dichotomy, that there's really only two voices, two gods, one a small G God, one a capital G God, One a liar, the other the truth. (coughs) Another reflection I think the study note points out. The one who hears is uh, possibly, again I think this is a completely different angle on the proverb than I've just taken, but um, one who listens carefully can detect the lies, can detect the false witness and thus endure and not be ensnared by it. I think that's a fine reflection on the proverb. Just a different aspect of it. Okay, any thoughts there? On we go. 29. A wicked man puts on a bold face, but the upright gives thought to his ways. Here's a beautiful reflection. Again, it invites contemplation. But a wicked man hides his wickedness by confidence. And by a kind of confidence that exudes, I'm doing the right thing. Luther is so wonderful on this in the seventh commandment of the large catechism where he talks about all the wealthy bankers and businessmen of his days and how they all walk around with a bold face expect, expecting everyone to acknowledge their greatness, their wonder, and kowtow and faint and fawn at their great philanthropy and worship at their feet as the most moral people in the world when Luther says what is exactly true of that age and our own. They're the greatest thieves the world has ever known. In fact, there's kind of a perverse... We see a pickpocket, using Luther's language, or a sneak thief, and immediately to prison with them and throw away the key. But what about the people who rob you blind through the legality of inflation? What about the people who rob you blind through the legality of a property tax? Or, in essence, the property you own isn't really owned by you but by the entity called the state and you pay rent to them. What about mega corporations who manipulate the stock market? What about the pharmaceutical industry who could care less frankly about our health but cares about making a dollar? and will do so at all expenses. What about the military-industrial complex, which will start wars that slaughter tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people for the sake, ultimately, of making money? I hate to break it to you, but I'm sure many of you are already aware of this, but this will blackpill you, so to speak, on the world. It's the way the world works, and the shiny faces on TV are all there to tell you it's okay. And these people are actually good. Uh, the judgment day will be a day, I mean, you know, it's, it's a day of uh, terror for sinners. With the Lord there is forgiveness. And so we know that we shall stand on account of, of his forgiveness of our sins. But those who have rejected this forgiveness... ah. That's going to be an incredible day. It's going to be a day of revelation and a day of unveiling and a day where there are going to be many, many people whom the world celebrated and we're going to all see them for what they are and we're going to see them, uh, not not even in our wildest dreams did we think they were truly that wicked. That's the kind of revelation that's going to come on the last day. Nobody's going to shed any tear when the wicked get cast into the lake of fire. It's going to be like, oh, hmm, they didn't deserve it. God's unjust. Not even for a second. So things to consider there. Um, I see a hand up front, so if the microphone wants to migrate that way, that's fine. If we're not running it. But just um, worth considering here uh, that we want to be of the Lord. um, And whereas a wicked man puts on a bold face... To hide his wickedness. What's the opposite? What's the contrast? The upright, so one who belongs to the Lord, gives, thoughts to, gives thought to his ways. So at a very basic level of reflection, it's, well, I desire X, or I want to do Y. Is that in keeping with the word of the Lord? Is that in keeping with his good purposes? Is that going to be something that I'm going to be proud of when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ? Those are the kinds of thoughtful reflections we want to have which will further distinguish us from the wicked of the world who just assume, I want it, I'm going to get it, I don't care. That first of all they think there aren't going to be any consequences and then if they think there are consequences, be damned. Uh, No, you'll be damned. And that's the reality that God speaks in his word. We just haven't seen it yet. Okay, please. Um, I really see 29 more than some of the other ones as a continuation of 28. Um, I mean, we use the phrase, a bold-faced liar. Yeah, 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 great. Um, And and the other half goes as well. In order to give thought, you have to have heard it first, so... Yeah, it's a great point you bring out. So the uh, boldness of face is deceitful in its very nature, and that's parallel with a false witness who tries to make his lie look like the truth. And obviously, if you're a parent, you already know this, but the more someone protests that they're telling you the truth, or if you watch that old episode, Cops, on TV, I don't know if it's still on, um, but it's great, great to do some, like, you know, informal study of human psychology, The more someone protests that they're telling you the truth, (laughs) the more likely it is that they're not. Somebody who tells you the truth just puts it bluntly. This is how it is. This is how it went. They might even say, look, I'm not lying. (laughs) But anything more than that and you go, "Uh uh-oh. Yeah, so so this, uh, I agree. I think this is a great point you brought up, that there's a deep connection between these two. Um, Oh, the word of a man who hears will endure then parallel with the upright, who gives thought to his ways. So living our lives not in the delusion of the fallen world, not deceiving ourselves, but knowing that we live these short lives, and we're accountable to God. And God is gracious and merciful. but we would our, our commendation also comes from God, and so we want to live in such a way that, okay, yes, we're saved by grace through faith on account of Christ but we're also living in such a way to seek his commendation that's the language St. Paul uses so we want to reflect on the course of our lives in light of the impending judgment and in light of uh, being face to face with him and the other saints kind of a good thing maybe especially it's a masculine thing I don't know Um, not to be ashamed in the presence of those who went before us right right not to sit down at the table of great men who were bold in the faith and willing to sacrifice or did sacrifice much for the truth, and you got to kind of sit there with your legs crossed, fidgety, because even though you were saved, you were a bit of a sellout and worm. Yeah. Don't want to do that. Be, be bold so that when you go to the company of your fathers and sit at table with them, uh, you're not ashamed. Yes, please.
1: I think even in our Christian world, um, many of us, you know, really honor the person with a lot of money and the bold face because we feel that they must have done something right or have a special cue in to knowledge. And um, I think a lot of them probably don't even know that they're in this category. They st- it perpetuates. It mm-hmm. seems to perpetuate. The more people honor them, the more they seem something about themselves as perfect. Yeah, yeah. And humbleness doesn't even enter into it, but we, in large, honor people with great assets.
0: Right, right. Yeah, and thus, I think, in, in light of what you just spoke, which is absolutely true, you can see why the, why the Bible almost universally casts a negative light or casts suspicion upon wealth. It's not to say that there aren't particular individuals that are Christians that are wealthy. We know the history of the church. There have been wealthy Christians. We know the history of the scriptures. Wealthy saints in the Old Testament and in the New. Uh, Christ's own ministry was funded by benefactors. Uh, So we know that those are exceptions to the biblical norm, but the biblical norm is that assets don't help you get into heaven. They hinder you uh, in the first place. And in the second place... For the wicked, there's no greater power than mammon.
1: But what if they themselves are fooled?
0: Oh, I think they are. Absolutely. And yeah. the I mean, deceit and is really
1: on them. And that's sad.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's pitiable. I guess it's pitiable. It's just that they're so wretched that it's, and they so, they're so wicked to, the, to poor people and just trample them under their boot that I, my pity runs real short, real fast. I may, it's just because I'm not a nice person, though. we'll see we'll see how god judges that's all that matters right all right shall we move along okay 30 um you know can be can be connected to especially as we've been talking about uh, mammon and and power and this kind of thing but um in a sense strikes out on its own so verse 30 no wisdom no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. Really straightforward, really obvious. Of course, the stereotypical atheist living in his mom's basement thinks he's got the argument that's going to best God at the judgment seat. Sad to report, not not going to be true. Uh, but this is um, important for us to remember, too, that God is not one to be manipulated, and you can't say, well, I know this, or I've got this, this. Uh, wisdom, or this understanding, or this counsel, and God's not going to be able to get me. You know, sometimes as sinners will even look for uh, other, other Christians to approve of some giant sin we're choosing, and even if we can bamboozle them into approving of it, or the church into approving of it, um, God is bigger than that, and not mocked, not deceived. Okay, 31 is just especially connected to 30 though the horse is made ready for the day of battle but victory belongs to the Lord so the Bible is filled with examples of this that um, very frequently the army that should win has the numbers has the technology does not and what makes the determination is the Lord this is just I was reflecting on this uh, you know even even just this morning it's like If if the Lord doesn't sustain you know your physical house, it's Anything could happen. Foundation could crack, fall into a sinkhole. The Lord has to absolutely sustain. You can do everything preventative in the world, but if the Lord doesn't sustain it, it's not going to be sustained. So it's just a recognition then on a deeper level that, in a sense, all worry is silly, because the Lord has everything in His hands whether he allows uh, blessing or curse they both come from his hands and because they come from his fatherly hands I know they have to be good they have to either be blessing or a kind of fatherly discipline but just an acknowledgement that your bank account is, is, no, is no God there's no, no place to put your trust your health is no God no place to put your trust your ingenuity and mind are no place to put your trust all these things can be gone in a moment, in a blink of an eye. They're gifts that God has given you anyway. So he's the foundation of all things, and he gives victory. And you know, the, the, the beauty of, of uh, being a child of the Father is even when you lose, you win. Because as you lose, you learn. And as you lose, you benefit. And he never has us lose in such a way that it's definitive. That's it. You're in hell. That's not his desire for us. But whether you win or lose, you belong to the Lord, and He's uh, forming you and shaping you. It's an important part of masculinity, too. It's. An, I'm sorry to keep talking. Well, I'm not sorry to keep talking about this. It's just trying to be polite, and I shouldn't be. Uh, of course, the world has no understanding of masculinity at all, so we have to talk about it all the time as Christian men. Um, but a big, a big part of. Um, what, ter- what turns young men off is, you know, they, they think, okay, I'm a man, I want to be like my dad, and then they get kicked in the teeth, and then they figure, okay, well, I'm not really a man, that didn't really work out, and then they become a scoundrel, and they just, okay, I'm going to do this, that, or just find my own way. It's a really important part that we te- of masculinity that we um, <coughs> teach our sons that The essence of masculinity is getting kicked in the teeth And picking yourself back up And collecting your teeth And putting them in a napkin for the dentist to attach later And getting moving again Um, Because the the way that God Designs males in particular Is brutal it's fantastic it's wonderful um, but he he knocks you down and you get up again and he knocks you down and you don't want to get up and he helps you up again <laughs> and he knocks you down and that's the real path of masculinity through this life is uh, every every male in this room has all kinds of scars and all kinds of losses Uh, that have been taken Um, but christian masculinity is a a triumph of the will over those losses and a faithfulness in god that leans ever forward and trust in him and uh, the knowledge of a sure and certain final victory that is to come you know the scriptures say not only that christ has crushed the head of the serpent but that in due time god will crush the head of the serpent under our feet also It's important to remember, you know, no loss is permanent in the kingdom of God. So you will crush the serpent's head under your very heel. You will conquer death yourself when you rise from it in your body and not another. You defeat sin. Every time you confess it and trust the absolution of Christ, and you will have conquered sin once and for all through the word of testimony and the blood of the Lamb. That's the language of Revelation 12. When you confess Christ unto death, are found faithful unto death, you receive the crown of eternal life. Neither sin, nor death, nor the devil. Even though we've taken countless L's, as the kids say, from these powers, none of them conquer in the end. We keep moving forward, we keep conquering them, and in the end, we are in finality 100% victorious. That's the path, but it's a, it's a brutal path. Um, it's, a, it's an agonizing path, to use the language of our Lord. But that's what we should lean into and know that that's what's going on and know that that's the root of Christian masculinity. Nobody gets into heaven un- with an undefeated record. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus is the sole one who can accomplish that. Uh, every other every other uh, uh, Christian man in particular, but probably every Christian, enters heaven with more losses than wins. But the wins are definitive, and the final victory is assured. So, just some thoughts there as well, um, off the cuff. Our strength belongs to the Lord, not to us. And there's no strength. That's the proverb in verse 31 there's no wisdom any various kinds that's the point of the proverb in verse 30 no strength no wisdom can avail against the Lord but rather the victory is his and will be ours as he graciously gives it to us in Christ Jesus okay before we pivot on let's see if you have any reflections or any thoughts There's a hand in the back. Wisdom uh I I'm always I'm trying to think of wisdom now is only the beginning of knowledge of knowledge of the Lord as we're it instructed to do at the I think it's at the beginning of Proverbs. You're thinking about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yes, mm-hmm. thank you. Yeah. thank you. Yeah. So does that fit into, the, into what you just said? 100%. Okay. 100%. Yeah, and there's, I mean, it's kind of a cliche or maybe even a little cheesy, but it's, it's still true. Um, if you fear the Lord, you don't have to fear anything else. <laughs> you know, it's, it's great to reflect on. Um, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom. The, the fear of the Lord, we could say very easily with St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, is the beginning of strength. Fear of the Lord uh is then losing fear of everything else. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um there's really no reason to Oh yes, I'm sorry, please.
1: Excuse me. Um I wonder too if uh this might have something to do with the limits of reason and something might seem to make sense logically, but nonetheless it's incorrect and the Lord will prevail.
0: Yeah, right. Logic will show you its own limitations when it concludes things that are obviously and evidently contrary to God's word. And you go, oh, it's not that God is a liar. <laughs> it's that reason is a tool used for specific tasks. That's why God has given us the light of reason. And that doesn't mean that reason is used for every task, and especially not the theological task. We have to use reason very carefully in the theological task, because it's always subservient to the Word of God, right? It always has a ministerial use, not a magisterial use. It doesn't lord itself over God's Word, but rather God speaks, we listen, we believe, we don't have a clue, we believe anyway, and then we turn on reason, and it's a servant of the Word. It's a ministerial use of reason. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, reason will itself um, set its own limitations and bounds, if, you, if you're willing to pay attention to it. And you'll realize that reason itself will teach you it's not a tool of theology. or nece- And, and that it, even in terms of creating objective truth, reason itself uh, stops in many cases. can't comprehend things um, that are nonetheless the case okay so there's no reason to put a chapter break here the guy who was doing this was not inspired by the holy spirit some people think he was riding a horse blindfolded drunken who knows there's no real reason to put a chapter break here but there is one Twenty-two, one. a good name really reputation in view is to be chosen rather than great riches Just look at how the world has, I mean, again, the uber-rich or quote-unquote elite try to do both. Um, Many in the lower echelons would actually prefer to have great riches and a bad name than a good name and great riches. That's just an example of really myopic thinking in this world so i mean think think just one example of this in our culture of the litigiousness the the idea of i'm going to compromise my reputation uh and trade that in very quickly in order to get a payout and many many are willing to make that bargain and that's not a good bargain again because the lord is watching and the lord is the one whom we seek to please So a good name is to be chosen, a good reputation is to be chosen, rather than great riches. So if it comes down to having integrity or wealth, always choose integrity. Favor here can, of course, I mean, it invites reflection, can be the favor of the Lord. It can be that he looks upon you and enjoys you. It can be the favor of other people with integrity. But the favor of those who have integrity, saints and the Lord, is better than silver or gold. Silver and gold perish, if nothing else. They can be taken away from you. They can be inflated out of having any value. All manner of, and then the pleasures they give are just fleeting. I mean, Luther comes right out and says, ill-gotten gains never profit anyone. They buy bread with it, and the bread turns to ash in their mouths, and they store up great wealth and can never actually find enjoyment in it. And, you know, that's kind of a way in which you can see God punishes. You know, if somebody just overnight made you a billionaire, you go, okay, I want to go sit on a beach somewhere and enjoy my money with my family and, and take it easy. The the curse of those who tend to become billionaires is that they don't actually ever enjoy what they have. Because if you have a billion, are you content with a billion? You want two. And you got two, you, got, you want four. You want four, you want eight. And so on and so forth. And you end up running this rat race of never even enjoying what you've worked so hard to have. And that should be acknowledged, too, that there's all kinds of treachery with silver and gold. And, uh, or, yeah, it's the great American poet... P. Diddy said, the more money, the more problems. So, that is in view here also. To have the favor of the Lord, the favor of those who have integrity, is itself better than silver and gold, and a good name to be chosen over great riches. Okay, to the rich and the poor meet together, The Lord is the maker of them all. A fascinating proverb that's very open-ended and could be reflected on in many and various ways. But I will just choose one. I think maybe at the core of this is the idea that the rich and the poor have their engagements. Now, who makes rich and who makes poor? Mm, That's a complicated question. In one sense, God. But reflecting on other Proverbs, there's also a sense in which man, through his uh, effort, that effort is often rewarded with benefit, but not always. So it's complicated, and it's worth pondering that sometimes effort results in profit, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes God grants material blessings to those who are faithful sometimes God grants material blessings to those who are profoundly unfaithful so the rich and the poor meet together the Lord is the maker of them all what do you suppose or what do you suppose he is watching for as he's granted wealth the way he's granted wealth creating disparity and difference what do you think I hear some thoughts how the wealth is used how the wealth is used God in a very simplistic way allows poverty as an opportunity for those who have wealth to show kindness God allows suffering for the purpose that others might show kindness to the sufferers Now Especially here in America, you know, well, I don't know, this goes two ways, as everything goes in America these days, but, you know, in one sense, we live in a culture of victimhood, and everyone's a victim, and poor me, and it's not my fault, and my genes made me do it, and my circumstance made me do it, and your racism made me do it, and wah, 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 Um, just give me a handout. Okay, so that being acknowledged, it's a pervasive cultural problem, is this, this victim mentality. Uh, the flip side of that is when we find ourselves truly suffering, or truly victims, or truly under, um, very obviously would be uh, health constraints, or things outside of our control that dim- severely diminish our ability we immediately have a tendency to think of ourselves in pragmatic terms of like, well, there's no purpose. This is just a waste. I'm not doing anyone any good. Why is God having me do this? One very clear reason why he allows suffering is as opportunity for others to be merciful to that suffering. And you may live a life where you see other sufferers and are able to nurture them and help them and help carry their load and alleviate their burden. And that's good. That's wonderful. When you find yourself in that position of sufferer, though, you have to have a humility of heart. That the Lord may well be permitting you to suffer, may well be permitting you to have your hands tied behind your back for the sake of others being able to minister to you. So that's part and parcel. I know that's going to hit different personalities different ways, and that's fine. I'm aware of all that. But for those of you who have uh, maybe a streak within you, as I myself kind of do, of just visceral independence, God does knock us down a notch, and in the end, in finality of life, he really knocks us down a notch, that we might learn that valuable lesson of being a sufferer, and having others care for us. Of being dependent and that being okay. Part of the plan and part of what God's doing for the sake of others. So we bear that, bear that cross when it comes. Okay, so the rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. Very open-ended proverb. Lots of reflections invited. Moving on to three... The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. Well, the words of our Lord to be wise as serpents but innocent of, as doves could easily be taken as a kind of thesis and theme for all of the Proverbs we've been looking at today. Here, especially, that kind of wisdom shines. Uh, that, th- I mean, just take it at, a, at its very lowest basic level. You see danger, and instead of just plodding along into it, you divert course. You hide yourself, and you don't fall into the danger. That's kind of the be wise as serpents, okay, and yet in your wisdom be innocent as doves the ulterior is someone who's not living a life of contemplation, a life of foresight, a life of evaluating his path in the light of God's word. He's just going to go on. He's just going to figure hey this is what I think so it's self-evidently true and I'm just going to march along and oh is that danger? Well I know I'm right so who cares and he just ends up going on and suffering that very danger. So I think we can read this. I mean, again, it invites lots of different takes and different meditations. But we can certainly read this as the idea that God puts danger on our path. And he does so very often that we would recognize it and avoid it. He gives us our minds to be able to do that and teaches us, if we're just going to be simple or foolish or headstrong or stubborn or live lives of blind wandering wherever we see fit uh, we're going to run into those dangers we're going to walk right into them so the prudent sees danger and hides himself but the simple go on and suffer for it in this case you don't want to be simple you don't want to suffer the danger you could have avoided Maybe that helps us too, just to bring the other side of the coin. We're not masochistic as Christians. We don't seek suffering. We don't value suffering for suffering's sake. We know that God imposes suffering and does so with His goodwill and purposes. We receive that faithfully and dutifully when it comes. It's very different from some sort of masochism or love of suffering simply on its own or for its own sake. Okay, maybe time for one more Verse 4, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. This is the kind of proverb we've reflected on many times before, a recurring theme, and that is that God does grant temporal blessings for those who love him. The Ten Commandments uh, promise as much. If, if you don't really think this is maybe a Lutheran thing, go read the large catechism and you'll find out it very much is that Luther everywhere encourages us to keep the Ten Commandments because God promises blessings uh, for all who love him and keep his commandments. That's generally true, and that's the way we should look at life, and we should, you know, (coughs) compel ourselves to do the right thing by saying God will reward this uh, here in time or there in eternity, so to speak. Now, we also know, though, because Christ is front and center and is our example, that there is very often great exception to this. And that's just the other side of the coin of this meditation. Um, who had more humility than our Lord? Who feared the Lord more than our Lord Jesus? And yet, at least in terms of earthly reality, he receives not riches and honor and life, but... Saliva spit into his face and stripes from the whips and crucified on a cross. So we ought to hold that up. But then as we were reflecting on moments ago, that's not the end of the story. Christ triumphs over his cross. Christ triumphs over death. Christ is raised. Christ is ascended into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of God. And that's where he sits right now. That present reigning over all things. Does he have riches and honor in life? (laughs) Absolutely. So super abundantly that he pours it out upon his church by pure grace. So maybe that's the, the place to end that reflection is indeed it's true in finality. When we're all in the new heavens and the new earth with the Lord, not one person will be able to say, oh, I lack for riches, I lack for honor, I lack for life. We'll all be given. So the victory is ours because Christ gives us that victory. The Lord be with you.